Take your copy of the Bible. If you don't have a copy, talk to me about that. Turn to Matthew 1. My favorite type of sermon. A genealogy. I picked it on purpose. Via, oh wow, I heard it. Well, you're getting Christmas sermons. You gotta gotta have some sense of balance in there, right? Matthew chapter 1. We're actually going to be, for the rest of this year, working through Matthew 1, 2, and then the first part of 3 uh, as we go through the end of the year. <clears throat> but we start with a genealogy. I would remind you that all Scripture is God-breathed, even this part. And it's useful, it's profitable, training, correcting, rebuking, being trained up perfectly in righteousness that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good deed, including this. Genealogy has something for you today on how you are to participate in every good deed. This is God's word for you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matahan. And Matahan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that passages like this inspire such great humility 
in us. As we hear them start being read and many of us tune out six words in, certainly after the third father of, we're done. And it shows our frailty that we can't even hear the words from heaven. Here we have them, written in front of us, read to us. And we can't do it. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us now. Help the speaker that I might faithfully share the words of heaven. Help the hearer that we might all actively hear the words of heaven. That Christ might be all in all in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think I actually messed any one of those names up. I think that is actually the first time in this church I've ever done that, where I read a genealogy and not yacked one of the names. Humans stink at multitasking. You may have thought about it. I mean, men tend to be a little bit maybe more aware of this because we can't multitask two things. But by and large, humans stink at multitasking. I'll give you an illustration. You try turning left out of the driveway here at like 4.58 in the evening. What's the first thing you do when you pull up there, get ready to turn left? Usually before you turn your turn signal on. When you turn the radio off. Because you need that little bit of extra quiet to make the left turn onto Gold Hill Road. Because you're taking your life into your hands constantly when you drive in our ever-expanding town. Humans stink at multitasking. And we stink at multitasking even more when we interact with people because we do such an excellent job of creating kind of this paper doll version of what a person is and interacting with that paper doll version only. Right? We see this with celebrities all of the time where the way that Americans interact with celebrities, we treat them as a celebrity and kind of forget that they're normal people. I saw an interview a couple of months ago by NFL player J.J. Watt, one of the best. Uh, fantastic interview. And he says he, he's, he's a single man and is trying to uh, marry for life. He's trying to do it the right way. And it's interesting because he can't date anybody. Because everybody that dates him dates him for his money or for his uh, celebrity status or for his prestige. The only dates he can go on now are with people that his family sets him up with, kind of largely on blind dates. So that he can have people that genuinely try to interact with who he is. People are terrible at multitasking. They can't see both J.J. Watt the celebrity and J.J. Watt the man. In fact, that's something that's been true all throughout human history. And it was true largely through the ministry of Jesus with how they saw him. People did not multitask well. And when they saw this young, poor carpenter boy who happened to have brilliant knowledge... It confounded them, constantly confounded them because they saw him first and foremost as a poor carpenter boy. But then once he started demonstrating all of these other attributes, they could not figure out who he is. How does this man named Jesus know so much? How does he speak with such authority? How does he cast out demons how does he perform miracles how does he raise the dead all of these questions constantly being asked i mean so much so you remember this part it's one of my favorite parts in the scriptures it gives me great confidence even in uh, comfort in god's love to me that even mary 
at one point goes to Jesus and says, look, seriously, you're being insane. You need to cool it, calm down, and come home. Remember, this is Mary who saw the angel. She saw an angel. Remember, those are creatures of fire. They're terrifying, terrifying creatures. She saw that, and even still her faith wavered because she was not able to kind of get all of this into the human brain. We don't multitask very well. The book of Matthew is written to an audience, to Jews that are wrestling with that very thing years later. Jesus has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into glory. He's ministering there. But still the Jews are struggling with, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with this guy? We think he's probably the Messiah. He says that he's the son of God, but uh, he was a poor Jewish kid. He didn't have any real formal education that was notable to speak of. Well, what do we do with this guy? One of the smartest men to ever live, if not the smartest, certainly the most knowledgeable in the school. What do we do with this guy? And so Matthew writes a book designed to provide answers for Jews. What do we do with Jesus? That's the whole point of his book. What do we do with Jesus? And each of the different gospels have a different focus, right? Mark is all about action. Very little teaching about what Jesus said. It's a lot about what he did. Uh, Luke focuses on the outcast. It's very tender. It's very uh, encouraging. He tells brilliant stories. John is all about words. For those of you that like words, read John all of the time, right? It has all the words. Jesus talks the most in it. Matthew is for the Jew. What do I do with Jesus? And he starts out with a genealogy. Something that would have been unbelievably important for a Jew because Jews were all about genealogies. I mean, you think about it, you remember their inheritance in the land was directly connected to their genealogy. If you tried to buy land or get land in a wrong part of the country, you could be actually convicted of thievery because your genealogy was wrong. You had to buy according to your lineage. What you were allowed to do, what function in the temple, what jobs were available to you. Your genealogy had a huge impact on the life of a Jew. I mean, think about it. Your inheritance, ability to own property, what job you can perform. I mean, if that doesn't encompass almost all of what early Jewish life would look like, I don't know what does. Genealogies would have been unbelievably important, and so he starts with that. Now, I do have to do a bit of a tangent here. Because if you are a bit more knowledgeable in your, your Bible reading, you've recognized that we have two genealogies for Jesus, really. We have the one here in Matthew, and we have the one in Luke. And the challenging part about them is what? <laughs> they don't match. In fact, they actually really, really don't match. It's noticeably different. You, I mean, even if you zone out at reading the names and you don't really pay attention to all of them, you didn't recognize most of those from Genesis, or at least the first third You pick it up pretty quick. They're very, very different. And the great challenge with this is the scriptures don't actually tell us why they're different. They don't say, well, here's why we have this genealogy which looks this way and we have this genealogy which looks this way. They're totally different, but these are the reasons. And so we've had very thoughtful men and women, great godly heritage that have thought long and hard about this. And there's really two primary choices Most of you have probably heard the first one. Many of you probably not heard the second, and that's the one I actually hold. 
The standard answer that is most commonly given for why Matthew has a genealogy and why Luke has a genealogy is that they are the genealogy of his earthly parents. Luke contains Mary's. Matthew contains Joseph's. And that's proven usually because it uh, explains at the very end, both of them are very clear in saying that this is not actually who Jesus' father is, right? Um, Born of Mary, not born of Joseph. And while certainly that could be the case, um, that's a very, very realistic option. I personally do not find that persuasive uh, nearly as much as the second option. And the second option is that Luke is telling you the story of uh, Joseph's heritage, the actual heritage of Jesus. But Matthew is actually telling you the genealogy of the royalty of Israel. If you were to follow the royal line, the godly line, the righteous line from start to beginning, you know, from start to finish, you have it starting at Abraham, he goes through and he takes up the kings and he walks through all of the kings. So that when Jesus is born, not only is he born actually the Messiah, not only is he born King of kings and Lord of lords, he's actually literally born King of the Jews. So that when he's crucified, they put King of the Jews up above his head. That's actually true. Like he literally was the King of the Jews. That, that was his actual lineage. Um, both of those uh, positions, uh, I think, have great merit. I think both of them have arguments in the text. I think this one, uh, to me, is the one that's the most persuasive. But obviously, I'm not super dogmatic. I want to put it in your brain so that you know when you read it in the future. What it does, though, is set us up either way to look at what do we learn from genealogies. I feel like I have to answer the first question. That doesn't give us what do we do with it, though, right? We want to always make sure we're taking the scriptures and applying it to our lives so we can think about what godly living looks like. Well, how do we live in a godly fashion in light of this? I mean, there's nothing in this, right? I mean, this is, this is a terrible genealogy. It's dry. I mean, there's nothing really of note. This is boring as all get out, right? What do we do with a genealogy like this? Well, we're going to see a number of points each of them, God willing, very quickly. First, these are going to show really how the life of the believer can be changed because of who Jesus is. First, you're going to see uh, the life of the believer. We may be filled with confidence because Jesus is the fulfillment of promise. Christians may be filled with confidence because Jesus is the fulfillment of promise. As the book starts here, genealogy starts, Matthew begins with an opening sentence, a kind of cursory explanation as to what he's going to do. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, most of us kind of read that and go, okay, well, that's kind of obvious. Thank you, Captain Obvious. I had figured out that you were going to tell me a genealogy about Jesus. I just am going to get ready to read it. It would make total sense. But... If you've been paying careful attention two years ago when we were in Genesis and can recall all of the sermons from two years ago, which I assume you all can, you would remember the structure of Genesis is built around these are the generations of. It's called Toledot in Hebrew. It's the whole structure of the book. It tells you the the generations of heaven. It tells you the generations of Adam. It tells you the generations of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all we did. He's picking up the same language as Genesis. So that when a Jew reads this, many of the Jews in this day would do a lot of their fun reading in the Bible, in the Septuagint, they would be reading in in, uh, Greek. This is going to be the same vocabulary. 
So when they read this, they're immediately going to think, he's taking up the story that started in Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way down. To a Jew who's reading this, they're automatically going to think, he's not telling me a story about some Jewish kid who was born right down the street. He's telling me the story that started at creation. It started way back. And then, as if that weren't clear enough, he gives you a second clue with where he starts the genealogy. He doesn't go all the way back to Adam and Eve, interestingly enough. That's what Luke does. He jumps to Abraham. Again, a flashing neon sign for the Jews to say, look, this is the culmination of all of those promises that were given to Abraham. All those promises that were started before the Jews even fully understood what it meant to be Jewish. He is going to be the fulfillment of Abraham. Well, there were many promises to him, weren't there? In fact, actually, there was a covenant, a very wonderful one. And Isaac promises extended and continued to him. Jacob, father of Judah and the brother. Well, all kinds of promises leading all the way up to David the king in those generations, right? That first grouping, the way the ESV has it divided, verses 2 through 6. To show that for the Jewish reader, Jesus is somebody special. He's not just a kid. He's not just one of the local urchins that was running around trying to make a living cutting lawns. This is someone who's connected to the very beginning. Someone who's connected to the beginning of the story. In fact, someone who's going to be the fulfillment of the story. He's setting them up that as he continues to tell them through the various pages and chapters as he goes... That King Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises. And the result of that is that we may, as Christians, have confidence in the work of the Lord. We may have confidence in our Savior. I mean, he's going to make many promises throughout this book, Jesus is. I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, how do I know I can trust him? Because his story didn't start when he was born. He's the fulfillment of a story that's been going for thousands of years. He can keep his promises because he is the fulfillment of God keeping all of those promises that were made before we may have confidence because he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, many of us will oftentimes struggle with that. Now, some don't, right? Some have been given that great gift of faith, and they take things for the way they are, and if God says it, I believe it, and I move on, and I'm done. And that's great if the Lord's gifted you with that. That's wonderful. Many of us in this room are not that way. Where we have to wrestle through our faith, working it out with fear and trembling, struggling through, how is God being good to me in this? It hurts so much. How is God's goodness seen here? Or this is so unpleasant. How is God at work in my life? Or I feel so burdened with sin. I I feel overcome. I don't feel like I have any hope. It's for those people particularly I would call your attention to the genealogy. That King Jesus is first and foremost here the fulfillment of all of those promises. And if God kept them to Christ... He will keep them to you. 
He will watch over you. He will care for you. You may grow in confidence. This is one of those lessons we need to be instilling in our children so when they go to our college campuses and interact with all of the just wreck of thinking that takes place on the college campus, I'll put that delicately, that they're able to have confidence to say that, yes, my professors may adamantly say this, and they're flat out wrong because Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Because I know his genealogy goes back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and all of the promises that were given to them are fulfilled in Jesus. Well, secondly, it doesn't just stop that he's the fulfillment of all promise. In fact, actually, Matthew, I'll kind of put off to the side. For those of you that personality-wise, you maybe have a little bit of OCD, right? You have that little bit of just like compulsive organization. You know who you are. This is your book, right? Matthew is that guy. He compulsively kind of organizes everything. This genealogy is organized into three sections of 14 generations each. Now, interestingly, he dropped a bunch of them out. Uh, One of them, he's got 14 in. Luke's got something like 42 in. He he drops a whole, I mean, he's dropping centuries of generations out so that he can have it neat and tidy in that 14, 14, 14 box uh, to show you something which we're going to see. Uh, But the first one there is the the fulfillment of prophecy. That's verses 2 through 6. That's your first 14 generations. The next one is verse 6 through 11. As he then jumps into royalty. And believers can have not just confidence in God's work because King Jesus is the fulfillment of it. But we may have joy in his work because he is royalty. This is where it gets particularly special for the Matthew genealogy as it jumps in and traces the lineage of the Jewish kings. David, Salmon, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Isaiah, Jotham. You read this list, and this is the list of the kings. No, it's not entirely exactly perfect because he's making a theological statement as to some of them should have been kings when others shouldn't have. Um, but he walks us through all the way down to Jeconiah, who is the one when uh, Babylon takes them away. This is royalty. And again, for a Jew who's reading this, uh, now again, we read this and we're like, oh, genealogies, kind of zone out but for a jew who would be reading this he this would be in your face obvious thing they're saying look jesus is royalty yeah he's going to be you know looking like a poor urchin he's not going to have a place to to rest his head he's probably not going to have a change of clothes he's not going to be that guy that we see in the pictures with the you know elegantly manicured hair and the beard that's like super clean and well trimmed if he has one which he should Um, but you know like how much conditioner does the guy spend in the pictures that you have? Like, how much money in conditioner? You have conditioner at the time, right? That's not what Jesus looks like. I mean, he would have been... Um, I mean, again, kind of pause and think about it for a moment. In a small town, you know how there's no secrets? This is the kid that from the moment he was conceived, everybody knew he was illegitimate. So he was born as the illegitimate t- child of the town. Everybody would have known that. Everybody would have known. Mom and dad weren't married when he was uh, conceived. That's on his record from the beginning. Then he's born unbelievably poor, right? I mean, they, they go traveling. They don't even have enough money to get proper housing. And so he's born in the animal house. I mean, he's born in you know, the stables. 
I'm, I don't know about you, most of the women in here, I'm assuming that when you have your children, you like preferably like hygienic situations and with the animals, probably not your, your favorite thing, right? You don't want to have to shove a, a sheep out of the way in order to have your baby. Um, then as he grows, he's growing, being trained in a profession that would have never brought him much fame or notoriety and would never have brought him much money. And then he goes on to uh, being a teacher, which would have been wonderfully prestigious and wonderfully excellent, except he has no pedigree. He has no teacher. He has no formal education. He has no letters after his name, right? He's just a walking around teaching guy that nobody can kind of figure out. And Matthew is calling the Jews to contemplate, yes, that's what you have thought him to be all along, and you have been wrong. Because in your midst... You had the king of Israel, and you rejected him. You rejected the king of Israel in your midst. And not only was he the king of Israel, he was indeed the king of kings, and still is. He's setting them up to call them to repentance for not receiving the person they were supposed to receive. They too were bad at multitasking and saw only what they saw on the surface and were not able to move past it to understand who this great and mighty God is. In fact, actually, this is one of the great challenges for us in our current culture as we celebrate Christmas, is this is the one time of year that it's socially acceptable to bring Jesus into the conversation. But it's interesting, the only Jesus that's brought into the conversation is baby Jesus. And again, we don't multitask well. We like this safe, adorable, easy, pudgy little Arab baby. Although, interesting, we never make him Arab. We always make him white. But we like the, the safe little baby. As opposed to the judge of the universe who's going to come back and destroy all of his enemies. As opposed to the one who sent his avenging angel who killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. As opposed to the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now, who is so utterly terrifying in his grandeur that when even righteous people go into his presence like Isaiah, they flip out and think they're going to die. Isaiah does, Ezekiel does. I mean, Ezekiel's my favorite. He sees the glory of the Lord and is so stunned. He just sits there and stops eating and drinking and bathing and moving. He's stunned into like a catatonic stupor until the Lord says, no, mate, you've you got to move. You're going to die if you sit there. You've got to go. We reduce him to this tiny little baby. We forget he's royalty. Human royalty and divine royalty. He is the mighty God. All right, so Matthew, our OCD organizer, right? He organizes his whole book. He likes numbers. They're all into numbers. First grouping, 14 generations. That's where we see the... Confidence and fulfillment. Second grouping, we see joy because of royalty. Third grouping here is uh, verse uh, 12 and following, 12 through 15. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah, father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Abiod, Abiod, Eliakim, those are names we don't know. Right? We recognize a couple of names there, and they're names that we don't know most of them. And the reason being is because this is after Israel has fallen. 
This is after Babylon has come in and destroyed the people of God for their sin. They've been carried off into captivity. And then as they come back and seek to restore the, you know, restore the nation, you have a couple of those people that are good there. But they're, they're just a dismal. This is the wreck of Israel. This is the leftovers of history. Right? This is the dregs. This is not the highlight of Israel's history. Gone are the days of David and Solomon and left of the, what we have here. And you get to see here, Matthew again is challenging them that the people of God will have hope because of the progress in God's plan. God's plan is one of progress. It's not one where he steps into a moment of time and freezes it and stops everything there. But he could have done that in the garden, couldn't he have? Made Adam and Eve perfect. Their marriage is perfect. They love one another. They're enjoying everything. And then... Time freezes and everything stays that way. But interestingly, he doesn't. He ordains and permits them to sin. And then ordains and permits for that sin to continue and gets so bad that he floods the entire earth. And many of you that are older, you've seen our nation deteriorate and you think this is the worst humanity has ever been. I promise you it's still not so bad that God has flooded the entire earth. It was worse then. Right? We only have 60, 70, 80 years to think of evil. Can you imagine having a thousand years to think of evil? I mean, how, how bad can you get then? But the story doesn't stop. It continues. And that, that's the important thing to note here is that Matthew is anchoring God's salvation on a timeline that continues from beginning to end. And it does not stop. The Lord's progress is at work. His plan is being accomplished. And so you have Jeconiah, who was a bad guy, who turned out to be an even badder guy. You have Shealtiel, okay, Zerubbabel, great guy. And many other people, we have no idea who they are until Jesus shows up in the midst of a time that seems lost. In fact, actually, that's to give us hope in the progress of the plan of God. And I would encourage you to think about that for yourself. Again, many of us get frustrated with our circumstances, frustrated with what we're called to do, frustrated with where we're at in school and our exams coming up, or frustrated with our job or our boss, or frustrated with our spouse or our children, and we, we get try to, in essence, encapsulate that moment of time, and it consumes all of us. Instead of remembering that God has placed us in this time, and placed us in this place and in these circumstances and with these people as part of his progress of salvation. As part of that timeline that moves on. Remember, salvation is a process. Started prior to the creation of the world. It won't finish until the destruction of the world, right? It's a process, and we are part of that. He's actually teaching us that theology, even in the genealogy. And then, uh, lastly, and then one quick note. Lastly, as he makes a point here, uh, that Christians may have peace because King Jesus is the completion of it. Again, Matthew, our wonderfully OCD guy, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. I mean, this is like uh, Jewish numerology at its best, right? Seven and seven for the first group, seven and seven for the second group, seven and seven for the third group. So you've got the number seven and you've got three of them and it's like amazing, right? For them, three would have been an intensifier, holy, holy, holy. It would be the equivalent of holy, holier, holiest, right? And seven is the number of completion. So you have 
Completion, double completion. Completion, double completion. Completion, double completion. This is screaming to the Jew. It's completed. And then interestingly, what is it completed with? Jesus. All of human history, all of salvific history, all of the church, all of Israel, all of Judaism points to Jesus. Doesn't point to me, sadly, or to you. It points to Jesus. And it's completed in Jesus. There's no lack anymore. We're not like, well, oh, crud. Well, Jesus did a good job, but we're not quite done yet. I mean, he, he started the ball rolling, but now, who he's got me, he's got you, we're all set, right? This is screaming to the Jew, it's all finished in Christ. In fact, actually, it's being set up perfectly so that on the cross, he'll be able to say, oh, by the way, it is finished. <laughs> it is completed. I did it. I did it all. It's over. It's done. Salvation is mine, and I give it to you. Go. It's pretty cool. You can have peace because it's completed. That's that's fantastic. I mean, to think again that we are able to have as believers the ability to lay our head on our pillow before we go to sleep and sleep peacefully without our conscience bothering us without it just eating us alive, because we know, should we die before we wake, our mighty God, our soul will take. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's over. He's done it. You think about it. That's a life that I would love to live, right? Confidence, joy, hope, and peace. That is a life worth living, isn't it? And without those things, it's not. It's why this is the time of year that uh, is appropriate for us to make that call to repentance, to encourage others to come in and to learn to see what life is like with Christ. And not just little baby Jesus, the adorable little baby, but the mighty Lord God who stepped inside time and space. I'll make one final note, just a neat little thing, an aside. And particularly for the women in the room, this is the genealogy that he includes women in. And in Jewish culture, you would never, ever, 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 for any reason, ever include women in a genealogy. It would have been kind of socially unacceptable and not a thing that you do. Interestingly, though, here he includes four women. And none of them are Jews. All of them are foreigners. Right? You have a Hittite. You have a pagan prostitute who gets converted. You have, uh, you know, all of them are non-Jews. Why? Because he's hinting for the Jews. They're not ready for it yet. It's going to show up in the next set of books. They're not ready yet, but he's hinting at them. Oh, by the way, this salvation isn't just for you. This life of confidence and hope and joy and peace isn't just for the Jews. It's for the nations. So that you and me, most of us in here aren't Jewish. Our one Jewish person is not here right now that I know of. Most of us get to read the recipients of that. We should go and share likewise. A life of hope, joy, confidence, and peace in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for genealogies and how your truth is in them. And it is like a mine with diamonds hidden at the very bottom. We have to work hard but they're very good. And we know they are very good for you are very good.
Thank you for the promises of the scriptures. Shape us in light of them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.